0: Um, Like I said, I I left chapter 12 because chapter 12 of Exodus can actually be a book on its own. Um, Chapter 12 not only speaks of the redemption of God, it speaks of the judgment upon Egypt. And it also speaks about the feast of God. And we're going to see in scripture how it says that these feasts are the feast of God not a specific religion, but the feast of God. So if they are the feast of God, therefore we must observe these feasts. Um, Scripture is not written in vain. Uh, As a matter of fact, Joel says that scripture is there to correct and to edify. And so if scripture is there to correct and edify, we must take it as a whole, not just partially, not just the books that we like, not just the promises that we like, but scripture as a whole, Old Testament and New Testament. And in this church, as you guys know, we believe both. We believe the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, Jesus did not come to do away with anything. And I'm going to prove it to you in Scripture this morning. Because one thing we need to do is understand that everything needs to be taken back to Scripture. It's not what men says. It's what Scripture says. Amen? Amen? Amen. So, um, I want to start with a joke because um, I haven't said a joke in a while. And um, sometimes, you know, we walk into church and... um, you know, we may have had a a really rough week, and um, sometimes we're a little bit tense, but um, we can have fun in the house of God. Amen? God is a God of joy. As a matter of fact, joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit, according to Galatians. And so therefore, we must have joy. It's not happiness. Happiness is an emotion. Happiness comes and goes. But joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And so when you can understand that you can have joy even in the midst of your worst times, that's because God is present, Amen. And so I want to start with a joke this morning. I actually came across it this past week as, as I was sitting down studying, and I, I thought it was worth sharing. And so here it goes. So there's this older man, I'm not going to say an age, I don't want anybody to get offended, maybe somebody that's watching. There's this older man that's at the end of his lifetime, and he feels that he's also possible with the Lord. And so he says, well, you know, before I go to be with the Lord, I've always wanted to buy a sports car. i go to the dealership and I'm going to buy a sports car. And so he goes to the dealership, buys a sports car, the car salesman says, be careful with the sports car, it very fast. He says, hey, I don't worry about it anyways, if I crash for whatever reason, you know, this is what, um, I, I'm going to be with the Lord so I know where I'm going. The guy says, okay, no problem. So he comes out of this dealership, and he begins to step on that car, 60 miles per hour, 70 miles per hour, 80 miles per hour. He's just passing by cars, flying through traffic. All of a sudden, he flies by this, straight, uh, this state trooper, and the state trooper jumps behind him, throws the lights, and the old guy looks in his rear mirror, and he sees the state trooper. And as a matter of fact, instead of slowing down, he goes even faster. And so the state trooper is chasing him down the street, Finally, he says, well, this guy doesn't give up. I can't go any faster. I'm about to pull over. And so he pulls over. State trooper gets out of the car extremely upset, pulls up next to the guy, and he says, did you not see my lights back there, sir? He says, yeah, I saw your lights. He says, well, you know, normally when I put the lights on, you're supposed to stop. He says, well, officer, you know, I have a concern. He says, listen, I've heard every single story in the book. Okay, there's nothing that you can tell me that I haven't heard before, but that being said, I'm going to give you a chance because I'm about to get off of work in two hours. So delight me. Tell me what is your story. He says, well, honestly, sir, this was the problem. My wife left me about 10 years ago and she ran away with a state trooper. And so when you jumped behind me and you threw the lights on, I was concerned. He says, why were you concerned? He says, because I thought you were bringing her back. Had a valid story. It was valid. I understand why he was running away from the state trooper. <laughs> so we love to have fun. God is, God is amazing. It's been a while since I had brought a joke, so I figured I'd share something with you guys this morning. I couldn't stop laughing, honestly, when I heard it, so I thought it was worth sharing. But um, So as I was studying for chapter 12, I kept coming across different pastors that kind of made a division and a distinction between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. It almost made it seem as if the God of the New Testament was different than God of the New Testament. It almost made it seem as if there were two different people. But as we know, as we study scripture, we know that it's just one God, one book, one church that he's coming back for. not coming back for religion. He's coming back for a church that knows and acknowledges who the true God of Israel is. And so when people take it upon themselves to make these divisions and these distinctions, they get into trouble. that is because we do the same. We need to be very careful how we divide things, how we divide scripture. Sometimes we read scripture and it kind of runs the wrong way and we kind of Makes me feel like the way that sounds. Maybe, maybe just for some weird reason, maybe this scripture doesn't apply to me. Maybe this is not the season for the scripture to speak to me. When in reality, scripture itself is speaking to you at that moment. Now, we're going to see in this chapter, learned in the past three weeks, that God did make a distinction, God did make a division, but He made Between those that were his people and those that did not believe in him, the same division will be made at the end of times. It'll be a division between those that believe in God and those that don't. There is a day that we will come before the Lord that will be the day of judgment, the same way judgment is being handed down this chapter to the firstborns of Egypt to those that did not believe in him. Because scripture says that some of those that left with the Israelites were a multitude, a mixed multitude. What does that tell us? That it wasn't just the Hebrews that were leaving out of Egypt. That there was a mixed multitude. Remember, God the whole time was after the repentance of Pharaoh and the repentance of the heart of those that lived in Egypt. That's all that God was after. God had no intentions whatsoever to kill anybody. That wasn't God's plan. Unfortunately, we must understand that in this life, the choices that we make have consequences. And those consequences, we don't pay them up there. We pay them up here. People have been completely, completely wrong about the type of doctrines that they've been taught over the years where they think that everything you do wrong, you'll be judged one day at the judgment seat before God. No, there are consequences meanwhile. Yes. We must be aware of that. And so when things go wrong and we say, well, God, why are you allowing this? Those are the consequences to your choices. There is a cause and effect for everything in life. And we must be aware of that. Amen? And so then if there is a division between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, that tells me that the promises of the Old Testament don't apply to these people. But yet quickly, do they speak about these promises? We want to hold on to these promises even though there are some things or certain things that are written that we don't want to follow. Either we take Scripture as a whole or we don't take it at all. We don't take partial Scripture. We take it as a whole. When you get married to someone, do you just take partially of that person the things you like? No. And if we can be honest... It might not be everything that we like about the person, but the same way we receive it, right? It goes with everything in life. We receive it as a whole, whether we like it all or not. So these promises that are written in the Old Testament, that there is a division and distinction, should apply to these pastors. But yet we see it time and time again, pastors preaching from the pulpit. About the New Testament. The God of the New Testament. To, did away with the Old Testament. There was, nothing, there was fulfillment. There was nothing to do with the Old Testament anymore. Yet still going to the Old Testament. Preach about the promises. Preach about the prophecies that were spoken by the prophets. Which one is it? We must be very careful guys. What we listen to. We said it time and time again. What comes through these ears and through these eyes comes into the temple of where the Holy Spirit abides. And if you're feeding yourself the wrong doctrines, you're gonna be in very big trouble. You can't ask for the Holy Spirit to be to alert you on certain when you're feeding yourself the wrong things. So again, God makes a division and a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And in this chapter 12, we finally see the judgment of God or the 10th, which is obviously the death of the firstborns. But this was not just the death of the human firstborns. There was a much drastic death that was taking place here. It was the death of the firstborns for men. It was the death of the firstborns for animals. And God was not done there. He says, Aside from that, single God, and as well, He's battling time and time again, over time, time again, we see victory over every single god of Egypt. As a matter of fact, not only has He had victory over every single god of Egypt, He has embarrassed all these gods, showing that He is supreme and that there is no one above Him. Thus, the reason why some of the Egyptians got came before Pharaoh and said, we've had enough. Don't you see who the God of Israel is? We've had enough. Let these people go. Do you see, not see the suffering that's happening in Egypt because of your heart, heart? It's time that you let these people go. And what was Pharaoh's answer? He says, I will not let them go. I don't know who this God is. Well, finally, in chapter 12, God is about to show who he is. And unfortunately, it comes at a very harsh event. So in this chapter 12, we see the judgment of God. But not only do we see the judgment of God, we see the redemption of God. Remember, this was something that God was spoken to Moses before even the plagues began. I will redeem my people. I will take them out of Egypt. They are my firstborn. Remember, God was referring to the Hebrews as his firstborn. Thus, the reason why this 10th plague or this judgment is upon the firstborn. To show finally Pharaoh what he meant since the beginning of time, that time and time again, Pharaoh declined to submit to God. So we see judgment and we see redemption. We see again promises fulfilled to what was spoken to Moses at the beginning of these plagues. So we see the faithfulness of God in his word. We see that whatever he speaks in due time comes to pass. Now nine plagues had to pass before finally the judgment came and the redemption came. And we say, well, why did God do all these things? Again, I say it wasn't that God was looking for death. God was looking for repentance. God was looking for the repentance of Pharaoh. God was looking for the repentance of the Egyptians, the same way that God is looking for the repentance on our hearts this morning. We may come before the Lord one way, but God is not there to judge us and bring conviction upon us. What He's looking for more is redemption, uh, repentance, sorry. And if we repent before God, yeah, we might there might be some consequences, but that is what he's after for. The other things happen because we are so hard-hearted that we don't submit to God wholeheartedly. We only give to God what we know that we can handle ourselves, that we can be honest. Think about that. The things that we cannot control, the things that we know that we are not gonna have victory over, those are the things that we give to God. But the ones that we can control, we tend to hold on to them a little longer than we should. And thus the reason when we hold on to these things, that consequences happen. And then we're quickly to jump and say, but God, don't you see what's happening? Don't you see what's going on in my life? And I'm imagining God just looking down at us saying, well, you haven't surrendered that part of your life yet. So I'll step in. Remember, God is a gentleman. God will not step into our lives to do something or to give us freedom or to break a chain or whatever we may be battling if we don't give it to him. He doesn't do that. He's a perfect gentleman. And he only steps in when we allow him to step in. Not that he can't or not that he's not willing to do it. But that's the reason that he is a gentleman. He doesn't do it. That is what free will is, you have the free will to either give it to God or not. And when you don't, and they're the wrong choices, consequences happen. And the consequences here in this chapter 12 for the Egyptians, obviously, is the death of the firstborn. Now, God here in this chapter redeems his people. And what does redeem mean? He gives them freedom. Freedom from the enslavement that they were in under and the bondage that they were under the Egyptian Empire. If you guys know, if you study scripture, it says that they had been under Egypt for 400 and 430 years. Now, not all those years were they slaves. Remember, there was a time that they came into Egypt running away from the famine that was in Canaan at the time. So there was some time that they spent in Egypt before. The old pharaoh died and the new one took over. And that's when they became slaved. But all this time took place. 400 to about 430 years took place. That's a long time. Sometimes we complain about two or three months when you forgot to answer something. Even a year. Even five years. We complain. Imagine you having to wait 430 years. Not that you'd be around, but maybe your descendants would. Imagine. You share something with your son or your daughter, and in your lifetime, it doesn't come to pass. And then your daughter or your son might share it with their son or their daughter, and it doesn't come to pass, and then so on and so on. They had to wait 400 years. That is four centuries, guys. That's a long time. But what God spoke way back in time, God was faithful to fulfill. And so what he does he do? He redeems these people. He says, you know what? Enough has happened. Pharaoh doesn't want to let you guys go. Now I'm gonna step in because I've given enough chances to Pharaoh to submit to me. I've given enough chances for him to repent. I've shown him time and time again that all these false gods, all these pagan gods that they believe in, have no true power. They cannot compare to what I can do. And I'm just a God that is here for your good. I'm not here to bring anything bad happen upon you. I just want you to understand and acknowledge who I am. But the problem is that you have in your your command, and that's my problem. That's my possession, not yours, Pharaoh. And remember that we we saw it in Scripture, that Pharaoh time and time again thought that the Israelites were his. And God kept referring to as my people. In other words, I'm letting you know that they don't belong to you. They're my people. And so therefore, you need to let them go. And if you don't let them go, well, things are going to happen. But in the meantime, I'm going to give you an opportunity, because I'm a merciful God, to make sure you submit, and make sure you repent, and hopefully you will hear my voice. And as we know, that wasn't the option for Pharaoh. But again, God redeems his people in chapter 12. This is not just any freedom, guys. This is a freedom to obey God in his totality. And you say, well... Pastor, how can freedom be to obey something? Yes, freedom is to obey something. You will always have to obey something. Or when you get in the car and you drive, don't you have to obey the law? Don't you have to stop? By... Don't you have to stop at stop signs. Even though in Hialeah they don't do that, but you know, you have to stop. That's the law. If you don't, what happens? A cop will give you a ticket, or you can possibly crash and kill yourself. They are laws set in place for us to drive our vehicles. Well, there are laws set in place for us to follow scripture. These laws apply to the Israelites back then the same way they apply to us today. And that's what God was trying to show Pharaoh to show the Egyptians even to show his own people because if you remember the Israelites in Egypt they were okay with the circumstances. The only thing they didn't like was the slave part. So everything else, they had picked up idolatry. They had picked up, they worship worship all these false gods. They were okay with all those things. They just didn't like the slave part. But my wife said one time here a long time ago, we will always be a slave to something. You choose what you want to be a slave to. I don't know about you, but if there's... If I have to be a slave to something, I'd rather be a slave to my God. Because in reality, I am not a slave, but I'm more considered of a servant, a bond servant to God. That is the difference. If you're not a slave to God or a bond servant to God, you are truly a slave to something else. Whether it's your job, whether it's money, whether it's anything else, that you are a slave to because you live for that. And so that has control over you. Amen? Amen. So God gives freedom to the Israelites to obey Him. Now, this is a blessed opportunity and a proper identity. Listen to me carefully. This is a blessed opportunity and a proper identity to be servants of God through faith in Messiah Yeshua. Nothing happens... Without faith in the Lamb of God. We're going to see that in this chapter. It is through faith in Yeshua that we are servants to God. Please don't miss that. Because otherwise you'll miss what the Passover means. It is through faith in Messiah Yeshua that we are servants and have a proper identity in God. Amen. Also, there is no redemption without the Lamb. There is no redemption without the Lamb. The Lamb being Yeshua. There is no redemption without Him. He is the only way. Scripture says it in John 14:6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. Scripture says it. So meaning there is no redemption without the Lamb. It has to be because of Him. It is because of Him. And that's the reason why He came and died for you and for me. It is because of Him. Remember, when we pray to God, God doesn't see us. He sees His Son. No matter how nicely you dress or how much you've done your hair, He doesn't see you. He doesn't see none of that stuff. He sees His Son. He sees the blood that His Son shed for you and for me at the cross. That's who he sees. So again, there's no redemption without the Lamb. Some of the most important scripture that points to our Messiah is found here in Exodus 12. Again, this chapter can almost be a book in its own. It describes the judgment. It describes redemption. It describes two of the feasts of God and even gives us a little hint of the third feast, even though we're not going to go into that today. This chapter 12, I'm going to break it in two because there's just way too much information. We're only going to go through the first 20 verses this morning. But there is so much in this chapter that I hope you guys came ready to take notes because I have a lot to give you this morning. Amen? Now, we have finally reached the turning point in life of the Israelites where they finally are set free. And maybe you are experiencing something That you're looking for that turning point in life. You're looking for just finally, when am I going to get through this? Can I tell you that might just be right around the corner? Can I tell you that may be just right after the service? Can I tell you that may be tomorrow morning or maybe sometime this afternoon? You may be at that turning point. And so I encourage you this morning not to give up. Not to lose faith. Not to lose hope because your turning point can be at any given time. We just have to understand that it is in God's time, not in ours. And there might be maybe things that we've been praying for years, and our tongue is about to fall off, but, and we seem to think that God is not listening. But can I tell you that God is not deaf? God hears every prayer that comes out of your mouth. Every petition that you raise, He hears it. The Word says that His ear is inclined to our voices. The problem is that we get desperate, we get anxious. When clearly scripture tells us not to be anxious for anything. It's not in our time. You're not gonna speed up the hand of God. Can I tell you that? Or can I we I don't understand it took four hundred and thirty years for the Israelites to come out of Egypt. Obviously, nobody sped up the hand of God there. So no matter how much you pray, no matter how much you cry, you're not gonna speed up the hand of God. I'm sorry. What I can tell you to do is once you ask God in prayer, whatever it is that you're asking for, after that, just thank Him. Thank Him. Because in due time, if it's His perfect will, it will come to pass. Absolutely. And through the time that you're waiting, just be expectant. Don't be anxious, but be expectant. Because at any given time, it could happen. And it might catch you off guard, as a matter of fact. Think about... Maybe in your past, whenever you've asked God for something or you've prayed God for something specific and maybe you've forgotten about it, doesn't all of a sudden it just creep up on you? And here it is. God answers your prayer. That's how God works because he doesn't work in a time. He's not moved by our, 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 our emotions. He's not moved by our time. He's not moved by how much we tell him, Okay, you need to do this. Don't you see what's happening in my life? He's not moved by that. He's aware of everything, but he has a perfect time for every answer, because if he gives it out of time, you might not be ready for it, or you might mess it up, and so therefore he has the perfect time to fulfill what he's promised you, if it is that God has promised you that, because on the flip side as well, how many times do we ask God for something that is not God's will? We want it. It's just that we want it, period. Period. Our flesh gets the best of us, and we just say, okay, this is what I want, and give it to me. And God as well knows best, and he's trying to not give you that. No matter how much you force his hand or how much you entice him to give it to you, God says, this is not what you want. This is not what you should ask me for. And sometimes we just don't give up. And God says, okay, fine, maybe I'll give it to you just so you can see that it's not for you. But God knows best, guys. And so, you just might be around the corner of that turning point. Amen? Don't give up. Don't lose faith and don't lose hope. Now, I want to break down this chapter in five different parts. And if you're taking notes, you want to write this down. The first 13 verses, verse 1 through verse 13, describes the Passover. Verse 14 through 20 is a generational observance. Verse 21 through 28, Moses speaks and they obey. Verses 29 through 42 is the death of the firstborn and the exodus. In other words, the exit, the redemption of his people. And verses 43 to 51 are the regulations for future generations. Now again, we're only going to go over the first two this morning, so we're only going to cover the first two parts. Next week, we'll cover the remaining three, but I wanted to give it to you ahead of time so you, excuse me, so you guys can know what to expect and what's coming up. So again, I'm going to repeat that one more time. Verses 1 through 13 describes the Passover. Verses 14 to 20 is a generational observance. Verses 21 through 28, Moses speaks and they obey. Verses 29 through 42 is the death of the firstborn and the exodus. And verses 43 to 51 are the regulations for future generations. Now, that being said, let's get into scripture. Open with me to the book of Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to read verse 1 through verse 13, and then we'll break it down. Here, again, is the description of the Passover. And even though this was a physical event, there is a spiritual side to it. And we'll bring those together as we break it down. Amen? So again, it will be up here on the board. But if you have a Bible, please follow along with me. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, where God says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the person." Now, this, watch what it says here, if the lamb is too small, let him and his neighbor next to his house, not your favorite neighbor, the neighbor next to his house. So if you don't get along with your neighbor, tough luck you got to share Passover with them. It's in your best interest to start getting along with your neighbor. That's what scripture says. It's your neighbor. Next to his house, take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house. The lintel is the top part of the door of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning and what remains of it until morning you shall burn it with fire. Now, there's a lot there in those 13 verses. So let's get into it. First of all, we see that in Scripture, Passover took place and where it began. And the first celebration of Passover was in Egypt. And none other than the place where they were enslaved in. Isn't that ironic? God is bringing redemption upon His people, yet He's telling them, before I bring you out of the land of Egypt... I need you to have a celebration. Not only a celebration, but this celebration is going to take place while there's death being involved as well. So it's kind of like a bittersweet moment. Kind of symbolic to what the bitter herbs are. And we'll see that in a little bit. So again, the first Passover here, we see that it takes place in Egypt, in the midst of a death. Now in these first six verses, not only does God establish New Year's, And we'll go back to that. But also the first season of the year. And we see that in the number of days the lamb was with the family before it was slaughtered. Go back to scripture there for a second. Verse 2, it says, This month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now, in our Western culture, The first month of the year is January, January 1st. When December 31st turns into January 1st, that is New Year's for us. But the actual biblical New Year's is during Passover. Now, when is Passover? It is in the month of Aviv, or better known as the month of Nisan. And that is in March, April. That's when that takes place. That's when Passover took place. It was in the month of March to April. That is the beginning of months. So we see here that the New Year's to us is not accurate to what Scripture says. Scripture says otherwise. We just took it upon ourselves to come up with this beautiful calendar of 12 months, name it whatever we want to name it, celebrate whatever we want to celebrate in them, and say, okay, this is New Year for us. But the whole time, if you believe the Bible, the Bible says that that is not New Year's. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, and I've said this before, during December and January is actually winter time. What happens in winter to the trees? They die. They die. The leaves fall off during, during August, during the fall, the leaves begin to fall off into winter and all the trees, you look at them and they look completely dried out. So if there is New Year's, something new to be birthed, something new to come upon, how is it? That we just take it upon ourselves to celebrate New Year's in a time of death. When Scripture clearly says that there is something new I'm about to do. There is redemption for my people. And if there's redemption for my people, it has to be in a month where there's life. Not death. Death is just part of the firstborn. But that's not what I want you to celebrate. I want you to celebrate the Passover. That's the redemption of God. The death of the firstborn is my job because they didn't listen. So, why do we celebrate it in January 1st? And for some time and time, and we've been taught that, and we just, New Year's comes upon December 31st, we get all the little blowhorns and all the little sprinklers and everything, and we light up the sky as if in New Year's, but in reality, that's not really New Year's. Not only that, God establishes here the season. It says that for 4 days from the 10th of the first month to the 14th you shall have the lamb and on the fourth and on the fourth day you shall slaughter it. Now the number 4 is the number in the Bible is creation. And it's funny because there are 4 seasons that we go through, spring, summer, fall and winter. And if you think about for a second what happens in the month of March and April, it is springtime. And so, therefore, it correlates with the Bible as a new year because there is life in spring. The trees begin to bloom, the flowers begin to grow. So there is life. There is creation compared to when people celebrate New Years in winter time, where everything dies. God did not create the seasons because He thought about it and He said, "Well, this sounds good upon this time." No, they were biblical. They were cyclical according to the Bible. Man took it upon himself to change everything. We're going to see that in scripture time and time again. We proved it before. So in reality, God here not only establishes New Year, but establishes the season of that is taking place, which is springtime. And in that New Year, he says, this is the Passover. I need you to remember this, the time that I'm going to do something new and I'm going to redeem my people out of bondage and slavery and take them to the promised land. This is a promise that I declared a long time ago. And now you're going to see the faithfulness of the God of Israel. So we see God establish his new year, his seasons, not men's. Even though this is a physical event, we know spiritually, Yeshua is our Passover. Now, how do we do this? The Bible says that they were to take the blood of the lamb and spray and and brush it on the doorpost and on the lentil, which was the top of the uh, the top of the door. Why? So they will remember every time they walked in and every time they walked out. It wasn't for God just to see if the doorpost was painted. We're going to see in scripture who God says for you to remember, not for me. He wanted them to remember what that blood signified. He wanted them to remember what was to come because of that blood. What was spiritual of that blood. What was spiritual of the Passover, of, of that physical event that was happening during that time frame, and what was to come. Now how do we do this? How do we do it daily? How do we celebrate this Passover, aside from the physical event at the time of the year? Simple. Bible says that blood is very significant. And actually, the chapter 12 is called the blood chapter because there is so much blood being spoken about in this chapter specifically. And we know that, and we understand that blood has power, has authority, because we know where that blood came from. And not just an ordinary blood. It is a blood that we ought to cover ourselves daily. Because what? This is our house. This is a temple. Of whose spirit? Of his spirit. And so therefore, the physical event that took place in Egypt is symbolic to what you and I must do daily before we step out of our houses. And I've told you guys before, before I leave my house to go to work, I always pray for my children, I pray for my wife, and before I leave my house, my door on the inside, I cover in faith with the blood of Joshua, that no spirit may come into my house aside from the Holy Spirit of God. I have faith that that blood covers my house. That is what symbolically this represented, this Passover. They were painting the doorpost and the lentil of the house, not only for them to remember, but for them to understand who was covering that house. And that's what God later on will say, I need you to remember, but I know that you have faith in me because of that blood. And I know what that blood represents later on. You may be a physical event now from a physical animal, but my son will be the future lamb that will take the sins of the world. Therefore, by covering our homes daily, the temple of the Spirit of God, even though we may sin, because the Bible says that we fall short of the glory of God every single day. We're not perfect. Just because we do that doesn't necessarily mean there may not be consequences. But death itself will pass over. According to scripture, Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. So think about that. If you just walk into your house freely, not covering yourself, and you happen to sin, you are running the risk of actual death taking place. Or do you not get up in the morning and brush your teeth and dress yourself? Because if you come out of your house without any clothing, you'll get arrested, won't you? Well, if you're physically getting dressed, spiritually, you also have to dress. It's not just the blood that you need to apply over yourself and over your household, but also the armor of God that you need to put on yourself. That's a whole separate teaching, and my wife has given that. That's on our website if you'd like to see that. So we need to understand the significance of blood, what it represents, what it took place here as a physical event, but spiritually, the power that it has to cover us. Romans 6.23 continues to say, But the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord, Yeshua. So what has been taught over the years to ignore because Jesus fulfilled it all, Supposedly in the New Testament, it's wrong doctrine. We've proved that time and time again with Scripture. Man adds and manipulates the Word, and those that don't sit and study are the ones that are manipulated from those that stand here in the pulpit, just because they're called pastors. I've said it time and time again, whatever we teach from this pulpit, go test it. Take it back to Scripture. If you find something different, sit with me and we'll talk about it. But you will see here that we take everything back to Scripture. I don't take anything out of context. Everything is what the Word says. So again, it is wrong doctrine, and we have ignored, not only is it wrong doctrine, but we have ignored what God has established. We will see that these feasts are not just for the Jews. These feasts are not for a type of religion. These feasts are for His people. So if you consider yourself His people, these feasts are for you. Not only are they for you, but you're going to see in Scripture how they are supposed to be celebrated and until when are they supposed to be celebrated. Not what I say, what Scripture says. These feasts established by God were set up as three things. Types. These They pointed always to our Savior, Messiah. Two, as models for us to live our lives by. And three, to commemorate, for us to celebrate them. So they were types, models, and commemorations. These feasts all point to our Savior, yes. But there is a physical aspect of us celebrating them, to partake in them, because they were written in Scripture for us to celebrate them as well. There is a spiritual side, but there is also a physical side. And also a physical side with ordinance and with directions of how to celebrate them and when to celebrate them. You don't just celebrate Passover in the winter. You don't celebrate the Feast of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks that we just finished passing. You don't celebrate them in the fall. No, the fall has its own feast. The spring has its own feast. It is when God has ordained to celebrate them. Amen? Amen. Amen. So again, what are these feasts here for? What is Passover that we're speaking about, it is to teach us what was to come and also what we will be celebrating in the new millennium. Oh, you mean we're supposed to celebrate these in the new millennium? Yes. Because at the end of the day, whose feast are they? God's feast. Not a religion. Joshua was killed on Passover. Not by coincidence, but to bring the fulfillment of what he will later on represent. He was killed in Passover for people to understand that later on he will be the Passover lamb spiritually of the physical event that took place. That's how you tie the two. He is the spiritual part, but there is a physical part that also takes place. And it takes place every single year. Now, modern day religion celebrates Passover. You're like, how is that, Pastor? Very simple. That's celebrated as Good Friday. Where in Scripture does it say that we must change Passover to Good Friday? Where in Scripture does it say that we must tie it in to a man-made holiday, which associates it with a rabbit. All this took place because of the early church some 1700 years ago of the Catholic bishops that were anti-Jewish completely and wanted nothing to do with the Jews. And so they changed everything. And what happened throughout history, the church religion adopted these things. So every time I hear people say, oh, we celebrate Good Friday, and on Good Friday I don't eat meat. Tell me in Scripture, what does it say that? that? What's Good Friday? Show me. Where does in Scripture it says not to eat meat? As a matter of fact, you're wrong. It says we're celebrating with a lamb. That's meat. Religion will always tell you to celebrate things opposite of what Scripture says. And so when Christianity says, oh, no, I don't have a religion, I have a relationship. Well, let me break relationship down. Relationship is in agreement between two parties. So if you have a relationship with God, the only God, because as we know, there are not two different gods, it is the same God, even Joshua in John 14, which is in the New Testament, says, you go through the Father through me. So, meaning he acknowledges who the Father is. And the Father has been spoken since the beginning of time. So, if there is a relationship, there is an agreement. Now, what is that agreement? Agreement to everything that it's written. Not just partially. Not just what you like. Not what feels good. Everything in scripture. That is a relationship. So, when Christianity says, that's Old Testament, Jesus did away with, nowhere in scripture does it say that. And we explain it time and, te- time and time again. Fulfillment is doing, not doing away with. Yes. We see Yeshua, as a matter of fact, in the New Testament, gather when? On Saturdays. In the synagogues. To do what? To have a party? No. To worship God. Not on Sundays. Oh, but, you know, because of Yeshua, we can just worship any day. Yeah, you can worship any day. But he made it specific, and we learned that last week, that he was accustomed to doing, when? The Sabbath. Why? Because the Sabbath was a holy convocation. We're going to read it in the scripture this morning. Man will always turn everything, will always alter everything, and will always take word out of context, just to suit them. That's what man has done over the years, and we have adopted the same things over and over and over because the mass is doing. And if the church is packed and they're doing it, guess what? it must be right. Not so. We've learned that. So again, man, religion, has taken word out of context, has changed even the names of God's feast. Just to be politically correct. That's what it comes down to. Well, we need to make sure we accommodate everybody. And if they don't, you know, the Jews are the ones really that celebrate Passover. So, you know what, let's just call it Good Friday. And, you know, every, it's, it's good, it's Friday. It's the end of the week, right? We're going into the weekend. It's the, day of the, uh, it's the end of the work week. So we'll call it Good Friday. Not eat meat because we chose not to eat meat for whatever reason. And, uh, and then we'll associate it with... Um, Resurrection Sunday and uh, Easter with a bunny laying eggs. As we know, bunnies don't lay eggs. It's a shame that we have fallen for such lies for so long. And people just go with the flow. Why don't we have our own self-opinion about things if we have our own self-opinion about other things? See, when something rubs us the wrong way, we have a self-opinion. But when something just seems to flow, And it's not really bothering me too much. We just go with it until it becomes a problem. Then I want to speak my voice. Then I have something to say. By then it might be too late. By then you're so deep involved that you might not realize all the consequences that you brought upon yourself, your family, and everybody else. Because remember, things that happen don't just affect you. They affect everybody around you as well. And if you have children, you need to be very aware of those. Look what Ecclesiastes 1 9 says. Let's take everything back to Scripture. Since Jesus came to do the new Testament, he came to do something new. But it's, it's incredible how the word says otherwise. Ecclesiastes 1 9. You guys already see it on the board, huh? He came to do something new, people say. I wonder what that new is. Just read it from here. Says, that which has been in is what will be. In other words, what took place is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. That which was done is what's going to be done. And there is nothing new under the sun? Nothing new. So did Jesus come to do something new? According to scripture, no. What did he come to do? What was already done? There is nothing new. What we've been taught over the years has been so wrong, has been so manipulated. The problem is that we don't take the time to read the pastor, he's been a pastor for 30 years. He must know what he's talking about. So I'm just going to believe it and go home with it. And people wonder why they remain stagnant in their spiritual life. Because God will not bless manipulation. Can I tell you that? It doesn't matter from whose mouth is coming. Manipulation is not what God brings. And so therefore, if it's not coming out of his mouth, he will not bless. So if you sit there and you believe what man says, and you don't test it with his word, he will not bless what you are believing because it's manipulation. And it didn't come from his mouth. It came from man. You just don't take the time to read it. But according to scripture, it says what is going to be done is what was already done. And there is nothing new under the sun. So, Jesus did not come to do anything new or to do away with. He came to fulfill it, to do it, to put it into practice, and to walk it out. That's what He came to do. Now, I don't know about you, but I rather celebrate God's divine ordinance. I don't know about you, but I rather celebrate God's divine ordinance for all his feasts, not just some, than man-made doctrines and traditions. It is man who makes Good Friday. It is man who makes Easter. It is man who makes Halloween. It is man who makes Christmas. It is man who makes all the other feasts that they come up with. None of that. It's written in Scripture. None of it. The problem is they put Jesus on top of it and it just sounds good, and people go with it. It's Resurrection Sunday, but it's also Easter Sunday. And as if you guys remember, if you pass by churches, you're going to see on their billboards, it doesn't even say Resurrection Sunday anymore. It says Easter Sunday. So they have completely gotten away from the, what truly is represented in that weekend. The resurrection of their Savior. Not even about that anymore. It's about Easter and they have loaded their campuses and their, and, their, and their facilities with a bunch of bunnies and a bunch of eggs so the kids and the families could come and they can pack the church. And they can have a good tithing offering because we've got to pay for all these things. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I offend anybody? That is what modern day Christianity and modern day religion and all these other religions have gotten to that they don't even believe in what that day truly represents. It's more about the bunny than about the resurrection of our Savior. Sad. But that's what man-made doctrines and traditions have become. And little by little, people are being deceived and are being steered away from Scripture, from the truth of that celebration. Amen? From verses 7 to 11, we will see specific instructions by God for the Passover. Now, please don't miss this if you're taking notes. These instructions had also spiritual meanings. Again, it was a lamb, a one-year-old lamb. The Passover lamb points to our substitute, our Savior, Yeshua. Number two, the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread. Bittersweet event of what would take place. Remember, there was death and life at the same time. There was death for the firstborns of Egypt, and there was a celebration of life for the Israelites because they were being redeemed out of Egypt. So it was a bittersweet moment. Number three, the lamb was served whole. Whole is completion. Complete. Lamb was with no broken bones. Again, this is symbolic to Yeshua which had no broken bones in his crucifixion. If you guys study this, during this time, the Romans would break the bones of the ankles of those that they were crucified because it was a quicker death. When they would crucify them, they would break their bones and therefore the people would die quicker because they were doing them by the dozens. There was no time for, we're going to have a morning, we're going to have, you know, we're going to, put him in a casket. No, no, no. It's, there's a ditch. Throw him in there. Bring the next one. And so what? They needed to speed up the process. So they would break the bones. But interesting that when Yeshua was crucified, not one bone was broken in his body. Again, it's a representation and symbolic of our Savior. And last but not least is the hyssop branch. This shows Purification. And if you can read more about that on Psalms 51, it speaks about the hyssop branch and the purification of it. So we see the Passover lamb substitute. We see the bitter herbs and unleavened bread, the bittersweet event that was taking place. We see the lamb served serve whole, completeness, no broken bones, and the hyssop purification. So in a sense, we can say that the lamb came in the midst of a bittersweet event to purify that which was broken and make it whole. Wow. Wow. Amen. That's what Passover represents. So it's not just a physical event. It is a spiritual event. It is a symbolic event. Now we see the blood being very significant in this chapter, but can I tell you that it has been since the beginning of time? Blood was first shed for Adam when he sinned. There was an animal killed and the skin was removed for cover. Blood was second shed for the Israelites to cover their disobedience. Listen, the Israelites were not in Egypt because God sent them to Egypt. Let's recap for a second here. They left from Canaan because of the famine. Yes, there was a famine, but didn't God take them to Canaan? So if God took them to Canaan and there was a famine, don't you think God would have provided for them? No, they just took it upon themselves to say, we're leaving Canaan and we're going to Egypt. God never took them there. God never sent them there. We have read that story of Joseph when the brothers, oh, you know, they were chasing Joseph. No, they took it upon themselves to go to Egypt. Nobody told them to go over there. So again, blood was shed in the Passover with the lamb, for the disobedience of the Israelites. And third, blood was third shed at the cross by our Savior. Now these three events point to three different things. The first blood was shed for one man, the second blood shed was for a nation, and the third blood shed will be for all humanity. First for one man, then for a nation, than for all humanity. Yeshua went to the cross not for a specific amount of people, not for a certain type of people. He went to the cross for everyone that would choose to accept him as their Lord and Savior. He gave his life freely. And it is the greatest gift that you and I can ever receive. The gift of salvation. Free. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to do anything for it. All you have to do is confess what's in your heart. Simple. That is the greatest gift we can ever receive. Mm-hmm. You don't have to work overtime. You don't have to lose sleep over it. All you have to do is accept Him as your Lord and Savior, and you will get to spend all eternity with Him. What an amazing gift. Now, go with me to verse 11, because there's something significant here in verse 11. Chapter 12, verse 11. You guys with me so far? Mm-hmm. It says, verse 11, And thus, you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is whose Passover? The The Lord's. Is it the Jewish Passover? No. Is it the Christian's Passover? No. It's the Lord's. As a matter of fact, if you see there the word Lord is capitalized. What does that tell you? It is Yahweh is speaking about the Father. Right. Remember, whenever you see in Scripture the word "Lord" capitalized, it's speaking about God Himself. Okay. Depending what version you have, but you will see "Lord," lowercase, and you will see "Lord," capitalized. Some versions say "Adonai," which is wrong. Adonai is Lord in lowercase. This is speaking about Yahweh's Passover. God himself. Again, here, these three things are very significant. Who cares about a belt? Who cares about a staff? And who cares about your feet? Well, see, they are symbolic. The belt, during this time, the servants used to have in their dress code, the servants of the house used to have in their dress code, this belt to hold their dress code together. Then there were, the staff represented authority. And then it will say in your hands, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So what this 11th verse here is meaning is us today, as this physical event that took over you know 3,500 years ago, it is for us to understand the servitude and the authority that we have in God himself through observing the Passover. The Passover points to our Messiah, but there's also another spiritual meaning of it. Here also it it was telling the Israelites, you guys have to do this quick, but you're going to be doing it quick. And where I'm taking you, you're going to be going there with authority And since I'm giving you freedom, it's the freedom to obey me. So therefore you will be my servants in the land that I'm taking you to. Now verse 12 and 13 pauses with his divine ordinance from Moses and Aaron and describes the judgment, the 10th plague that's about to take place. For those that did not believe in the God of Israel, let's read that for a second. Verse twelve and thirteen it says, "For I, who I, that's God, single person, will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborns in the land of Egypt, both men and beast, and against." All the gods of Egypt, I, God speaking, first person again, will execute judgment. I am the Lord. We see Lord there capitalized again. Now the blood shall be a sign for who? For you. Not a sign for me. It's going to be a sign for you. Remember, I said this earlier. The blood on the doorpost and on the lentil was a remembrance for those that were taking part of the Passover to remember what God had ordained them to do. This was their redemption. This was their golden ticket, in other words, was their saving ticket out of slavery and to freedom. It was to remember them every time they would go in and out of the house. Not God. It is for your own good, not for me. God knows what he's about to do. But he says, if you obey me, And if you listen to my instructions and do what I'm telling you to do, it's going to remind you of what I'm about to do tonight, which is a bittersweet event, but you're going to benefit off of it. Remember, we said it earlier, God was putting a table in the presence of all the Israelites and in the presence of their enemies, the Egyptians, through the nine previous plagues. Remember, they were in Gershon over there and nothing was happening to them. It's like they were sitting down and experiencing the whole event taking place in Egypt. Everybody else was suffering, but the Israelites were celebrating, you can say, in Goshen. Now, we've been taught, again, that it was the angel of death that passed and killed the firstborns of the Egyptians. Well, let's put that to the test. Let's read scripture again. Go back to verse 12. It says, For the angel of death will pass through the land. Does it say that? I. Okay. Okay. I thought maybe mine was different, but it says I. Again, God speaking, first person. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike the firstborns in the land of Egypt. Who's going to strike the firstborns? God. God. Both men and beasts, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. Because what I am the Lord. There's no angel of death, nowhere, nowhere. But over the year of this, oh, the angel of death passed over. The angel. There's no angel of death. It is God Himself. Because otherwise, it will contradict what He said since the beginning of time. He told Moses, I. In Exodus 3, I believe, I will be the one passing through Egypt and kill the firstborn. So if he all of a sudden says, okay, angel of death, go ahead and do what you got to do, it will contradict what he wrote. So here he's fulfilling what he spoke to Moses at the beginning, the plagues. I will pass through Egypt. I will kill the firstborn because I am the Lord. And the blood which is on your doorposts and on your lentils is a remembrance of you because I know already that you believe in me and so therefore death will not touch you. Because what God bringing is what? A plague. It's not an angel of death. It is a plague. This is the tenth plague. The judgment. Let's continue to read. Verse 13. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see who I See the blood, I will pass over. Again, I, not the angel of death, will pass over. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Nowhere in scripture does it say the angel of death. Manipulation of scripture. As a matter of fact, as I was studying and I was watching some videos, I came across pastors reading that and adding the angel of death. And I'm looking at scripture, I'm like, my Bible must be wrong. And people were clapping. Do you not read scripture? Nowhere there does it say angel of death. It says I time and time again. God speaking in the first person. If he would have changed that, it will contradict his word. God does not contradict his own word. Never, ever in scripture will you find contradiction in the word of God. People manipulate it. So again, God says, I will be the one bringing judgment. This is the 10th and final plague. This is the judgment that's taking place. But at the same time, I need you guys to celebrate Passover because redemption is also taking place. Now let's read verses 14 through 20. You guys learning something this morning? Amen. 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 It says, so this day shall be... So verses 14 through 20 is a generational observance. We will see in scripture. Now what I say. Verse 14. So this day shall be to you a memorial... And you shall keep it as a feast to who? The Jews? To the Lord throughout your generations. Plural. S at the end. You shall keep it as a feast by and who? An everlasting ordinance. Now, last time I checked everlasting means forever. It doesn't have a time frame. Not for, uh, I'm going to celebrate it for three years. Uh, Well, you know what? It's the Jews' feast. So, you know what? I don't need to be part of that. Uh, That this doesn't apply to me. No. First, it says it's the Lord's feast. And this will be a remembrance for you through all your generations. So, not only you, your sons, your grandkids, and so on and so on and so on, need to celebrate this feast because it is not a religion, but more of God's feast. He established them since the beginning of time. Man has manipulated word again and says that this is for a specific group of people. Oh, this is for the Jews. You guys don't, don't, don't worry about this. this. Again, this is the God of the Hebrews. This is the God of the Old Testament. Don't worry about that God. There's, there's a new God in the New Testament. Throughout your generations, you shall keep it as a feast for an everlasting ordinance. Seven days, you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses, for whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Very important. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. Wow, would you look at that. The feasts are a holy convocation. Interesting. So I guess pastors don't believe in God's word to be holy after all. The Old Testament is not holy because we don't need to celebrate it. Interesting. A holy convocation for you, no manner of work shall be done on them, but that which is everyone that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. Verse 17. So you shall observe what? The feast of unleavened bread. Here we go with the second feast of the Lord. You shall observe It doesn't say, maybe, or I think you should. And it says, you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this same day, I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations. Again, he emphasizes again on generations. As a what? An everlasting ordinance. Notice that God is... It emphasizes on the same thing over and over. Why? Because we forget. We tend to kind of like blur things out. Oh, I don't really like this. Let me remind you in different verses. So you have blurred half of the Bible if you want to blur things out. An everlasting ordinance. Verse 18. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened, you shall eat unleavened bread. Until the twenty-first day of the month at evening, for seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses. Since whoever eats what is leaven, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native to the land. You shall not. You shall eat nothing leaven, in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened. Right. Interesting. So this is what for a couple of years, for five, for until we decide to. No, it is for all generations, because they are an everlasting ordinance. Forever, until God says otherwise. Now when you decide that you want to eat leaven during the week of unleavened bread. Why? Because if you do, guess what? You'll be cut off. Scripture says it. You want to be cut off? That's fine. That's your choice. There's consequence. Remember that. There's consequences to every choice. You can't live without bread for one week? Well, according to Scripture, if you eat anything leaven, you'll be cut off. So is that bread really worth... That much? Clearly, clearly, we see here that this feast is to be kept throughout generations because it is an everlasting ordinance by God. Not by men, by God. They are the Lord's feast. They were established by him for his people. Again, if you consider yourself his people, you will obey that which God has established, right? You have a relationship? Well, guess what? You need to abide by these rules. These are the rules that your God, if you are his people, and you understand that you're his people, then you are to follow rules. These are his rules, and they're not for a period of time. They are an everlasting ordinance. You are to celebrate them year after year. You know why you celebrate them? Because they are a reflection of who he is in your life. Mm. That's what Passover is. It's a reflection that there's something old being done away with, and there's something new. A reflection every single year that we must do. Not until we decide, uh, I've had enough lamb. I don't like lamb. Well, it says lamb or goats. You pick. Now, we also have another feast spoken here. And it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There is a spiritual implication here spoken in this feast How we must guard because it is what? A holy convocation. And let's break the Feast of Unleavened Bread down. Unleavened bread has the capability of becoming leavened if it's not taken care of and done properly. When the unleavened bread is being done, it is to be cooked for 18 minutes precisely. If you cook it, a little while longer it becomes leaven because there are properties within that bread that make it rise you say well okay who cares well there's something very spiritual here the same thing is with our lives if we don't take care of it our lives go from being unleavened to leaven they get puffed up why because we become full of sin That's what leaven is. Leaven is sin. So when in reality, what God was telling the Israelites to do, aside from just the Passover, was that they were to leave everything behind in Egypt and live an unleavened lifestyle in Canaan. That's what God was trying to do. You've been in We need to be people of integrity. We can't just say one thing and then act differently. Do as I say, now, as I do. That's what some people's lifestyle represent. No, what you say needs to match what you do. They both need to match. Again, otherwise, what testimony would we be giving? This feast should provoke us to leave everything behind and look forward into what God has new for us. That's what the Israelites did. They left everything behind. That's why they were in haste. They were servants into uh, going in with authority into where God was calling them, but they were in a haste because at any moment God was coming and said, "When I come, I'm going to kill the firstborns. I need you to celebrate, but take off." So we need th- this. This feast should provoke us to to live like that. If God. Is- Things. Stop doing that. Leave that behind. Surrender it to me. Give it to him. Stop holding on to it. Give it over to him. Let him take control of it because it doesn't belong to you in the first place. As a matter of fact, he doesn't want you to have it because it's doing you harm without you realizing it. It's not taking you, it's not going to be good for you. As a matter of fact, that which you're holding on to is a hindrance for your life. It's not good for your promised land. I need you to let go of it. Also, these feasts are what Paul writes about that are a shadow of what's to come in the new millennium. It's not something different. What was Paul? What was Paul's foundation? Where was he getting all these things from? The New Testament? The New Testament wasn't even written. How can Paul have a foundation of a New Testament when the New Testament, that, which he was writing, wasn't even written yet? He had to grab it from somewhere. What? What Ecclesiastes nine said. What was done is what will be. What's old is what remains. That's what Paul was referencing. And yet you hear people time and time again saying, Oh, the shadow of what's to come was to Yeshua. Yes, it was Yeshua. But what did Yeshua do? What was done? Yes. What was spoken of? Yes. That's the foundation to the New Testament. Otherwise, there won't be New Testament. Again, these are a shadow of the things that will become in the new millennium. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a good reminder every year of the cleansing that we must do and how we must reflect on our lives to please our God. This we must do every single year. Because if you don't, Scripture says, now what I say, that you will be cut off. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be cut off. I like all the promises. I don't mind all the rules and all the instructions that God tells me to follow because they are freedom to obey Him. Because if not, like I said at the beginning, you're going to be a slave to something either way. I'd rather be a slave to Him, a bond servant to Him. That's just me. I don't know about you. I'm almost done. Passover and unleavened bread are foundational to our faith listen to me passover and unleavened bread are foundational to our faith it is not only the beginning of god's feast for that year but it allows us to reflect and renew they are foundational to our faith and if god says that they are for your generations and everlasting ordinance it is your own good and for your benefit that you celebrate these feasts. Okay. Not just you, but your family. Get them involved. And if they have a question, take them to Scripture. It's there. Show them. Do it in love, though. Don't beat them across the head with it. Okay. Because that's what, that's, that's what people have a problem. If you beat people across the head with Scripture, people reject Scripture. But if you do it with love, like we should be, they're more receptive. They're more open-minded to these things. And you tell them, look, this is just for our benefit. The same way it was for the benefit of the Israelites then, it's for our benefit today, that we observe these things. Because God says, and if you believe in the same God I believe, they're an everlasting ordinance. Amen? Amen. Now, look at verse 19 and 20, and I'll be done with this. Look at verse 19 and 20. It says, For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leaven, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leaven. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. We see here that the unleaven was to be removed and for seven days you were only able to eat unleavened bread or on un- things that are unleavened. Why? Because otherwise you were cut off. Now this again is an everlasting ordinance for you and for your family. Where it says their dwelling places, dwelling, you can translate it into households, meaning you are to celebrate this in your household. Wherever you may find yourself, for those seven places, you have to make sure that there is no leaven. Because if you start the week of unleavened bread in your house, and on the third day you go have dinner in somebody else's house, and there is leaven, you will be cut off. You may start it good, but you finish bad. Clearly, Scripture says you need to remove all leaven, all of it. Do not partake, otherwise you'd be cut off. And if people get upset that you don't go to their houses, oh well, you can't please everybody anyways. But we need to stick what Scripture says, guys. It's for a week. You have 51 other weeks. But you can eat all the leaven you want. All the Cuban bread with all the butter and everything else that comes along with it. It's just okay. just for one week. But if we don't follow scripture to the T, if we don't follow scripture to what it says in its totality, then again, we can begin to rip pages out and we might not be left with any. I'll finish with this. Let us understand that these feasts were established by God for his people. And if you're sitting here this morning or maybe you're watching live and you consider yourself his people because you've been grafted in, according to the book of Romans, what was prophesied in the book of Ezekiel, you've been grafted in into Judah and Ephraim, becoming one stake, one nation, you are considered his people. So if you are his people, you are to follow everything God has established. It's not men. Is what God has established. So therefore, these feasts, which are God's feasts, you and I, considering ourselves His people, are to follow the feasts according to the way He has established them. And so again, if we consider ourselves His people, we must apply these feasts to our lives. Amen? Amen. Go ahead and stand, please. Go ahead and close your eyes for a second. Lord, we thank you for scripture, Father. We thank you for your teachings, Lord. Father, we thank you because your word is alive. The same way it was then with the Israelites. Same way you told them to celebrate these feasts, Father God. Father, I pray that you will give us understanding and you will give us clarity, Father God, of how and why we must celebrate these feasts, Lord. We must understand that these feasts are not the feasts of the Jews or any religion, but they are your feasts.